First Peter chapter one this morning is uh, where we're going to have as our text uh, passage. Uh, please stand at this time as we read. Um, we're going to read the first. See, there it was. That first. I start laughing while saying first. It's not laughing. First uh, Peter chapter one. Uh, we're going to read the first twelve verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us, again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations." that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Pay attention to this next part. Of what salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which thing the angels desire to look into. Amen. You may be, uh, uh, we'll ask the Lord's blessing uh, upon this text passage here now and uh, then get stuck straight into the message. Let's remain standing while we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God this morning. Lord, I thank you that uh, the message that we're covering today is something that the uh, prophets were inquiring about. It's something that you've said, now looking back at it, the angels desire to look into. And Lord, I pray as I preach the word this morning that your people will be blessed and helped. Lord, if there are any lost here today, and Lord, I wouldn't doubt in a congregation this size that there are people in need of you today. Lord, I pray that if that be the case, that today is the day of days for them where they would see their need and that they would receive you as their Savior. Lord, for those who are already saved, Lord, I pray that today they might rejoice greatly in seeing what good things that you have done for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated now. May the Lord bless that reading from his word this morning. And some of you know I have a reputation for being a long-winded preacher. I'm going to do everything I can to destroy that reputation here this morning and, and not preach too long, partly because I am still recovering from this uh, thing and I don't know how long my voice and my lungs are going to want to hold out anyway, and also partly because um, 
one of our brothers here in the church, Brother David Beatty and I, we went out and had a fun run yesterday, didn't we, Brother David? Um, and, and on top of that, um, we had our little fun run. I had to go, I had to get up at 2 a.m. yesterday to take my father-in-law to the airport uh, down in Charlotte. So I had to drive from Statesville uh, down to Charlotte Airport to drop my father-in-law off for the very early flight out of Charlotte. Then I drove back to Statesville. Then I drove across to Winston-Salem, uh, where, because I'm crazy, uh, I ran a 31-mile race uh, out there um, and then came home again feeling a little weary afterwards. Brother David ran the 25-kilometer version, which is 15.5 miles. Um, I don't want to put him on the spot, and I can't remember the exact number. Brother David, how, how old are you at this point? Sorry? Soon? 75 next week. Happy birthday, to Brother David. How many of you, when you say, when I'm 75 years old, I want to be able to run 15 and a half miles? Yeah. Brother Andrew, yeah? Uh, that's that's that to me is is inspirational and and quite excellent for 75 years old how many of you would raise your hand and say he looks in better shape than the average 75 year old how many yeah there you go i I dare say a man who can run 15 and a half miles he can probably blow 75 candles out if push comes to shove his his lungs are in good shape Um, and if you're wondering how did he fare he got first place in the 70 and over uh, division there in the race yesterday. Well done, Brother David. He's, he's quite the runner. Quite the runner. Uh, I, I love w- when we get to go out. We don't, we don't run together and race together very often, and it was, it was just good, good fun. So if any of you are wondering what it's like, come and, come and join us sometime. No? Okay. Well, moving right along... Uh, <laughs> So the, the passage of scripture that we looked at here this morning um, is what old time preachers would refer to as, quote unquote, more than a man sized text. Uh, I believe that uh, I understand that this is the word of God and that it's all good. But how many of you, because you're honest people, you say some bits we get more out of some parts of the Bible than we do out of others, Right. And so and so begat so and so who begat so and so. He was the father of this. And then you go to another place. And he begat this one when he was this old and then he died. And that one begat that one when he was that old and then he died. And Shealtiel had 457 things. And then we have the Dukes of Edom and the Dukes of Elam and the Dukes of Levi and the Dukes of Hazard and the Dukes of. Um, right? We've read those bits, right? If I said to you this morning I was going to read a genealogy and then we'd all go home, you're like, oh dear, let's just go home then. There are some parts of the scripture that we get more out of than others. And this is one of those things today. I hope today to expose you to some profound truths about not just salvation. Okay, We talk about salvation, we say it's great to be saved and it's easy to be saved. It wasn't easy for everyone for us to be saved. You say, well, yeah, obviously it was hard for Jesus to make the way possible. But I want to expose you today to some theology, the study of God. I want you to think about what God had to do in order for us to be saved. A lot of Christians nowadays are not very deep in their theology. They're not studying the word. They're not meditating upon the word. They're not thinking about the word of God. Uh, one of the things I liked yesterday while driving my 
father-in-law to the airport. We It takes you know nearly an hour to drive from Statesville to the Charlotte airport. And uh, we spent most of that time discussing theology in the car. There aren't too many men nowadays that can say, I love my in-laws because they like to talk about theology. That's a rare thing. It's a great blessing to me. So before we consider ourselves today sinners, utterly undeserving of God's mercy and grace, we need to consider some truths about God, who God is and what God is really like, which is quite different than what modern Christianity makes God out to be. If we said, what's the most important attribute of God? If you ask and go to most churches today, if you ask most preachers at most churches today, what is the most important thing that a person needs to know about God, most people would immediately say, most preachers would immediately say, God is love. How many of you agree that it is true that God is love? He is. That's not the most important thing to know about God. The reason why the world is messed up today The reason why so many unsaved people today are mad about God is because no one ever told them this truth. The most important thing that you need to know about God is not that he is love. It it is that God is holy. That's where we begin. Every attribute of God, and God has a lot of attributes, but every one of God's attributes, everything about God's character will yield and stop and give way to allow his holiness to pass right on through. God's holiness is the most important thing. And most people today have never had a face-to-face confrontation with the holiness of God. And that's a tremendously sad thing. Turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. You say, why is it sad that they haven't had a confrontation with God's holiness? And I tell you that it is sad because... If you don't have a confrontation with God's holiness this side of eternity, you will on the other side of eternity. You're far better off to address God's holiness today than on the day of your death. Romans 14 verse 11 says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Notice what it says there. Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. That doesn't necessarily take place here on earth. There are a lot of tongues here on earth that will never confess the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a lot of knees here on earth that will not bow to the Lord. But our scripture says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. People don't always realize that this passage that we read there, it says at the verse 11, it says, for it is written. A lot of Christians don't realize where it's written in the Bible. And the answer to that is it is written in Isaiah 45. And I will read the verses to you rather than have you turn there. Isaiah 45, starting at verse 22, says this. It says, Look unto me and be ye saved, 
all the ends of the earth. <coughs> For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself. The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength. That's where we get our righteousness from. In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come. But then listen to this. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. There are a lot of people in the world today that are incensed against God. What do you mean by incensed? It means they're mad. When we see the word incensed, it's like incense. It's like they're fiery hot. They're red hot mad against God. Can I tell you in my generation, I have known and I have seen and I could name names today and I'm not going to today, but I know people who claim to be born again. They claim to be saved and they are mad against God because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. That's a disgrace. But how much more so amongst the lost are there people today who are mad about the God of the Bible? Remember they, I said that the number one thing that most people say about God is that he's supposed to be a God of love, but they don't realize that he's a God of holiness. If you put love first, this is where you'll end up as a lost person. You'll end up mad at God and you'll say, well, I just don't believe that a loving God could put people in hell. See, you put love first instead of God's holiness and you'll never understand him and you'll be mad and you'll be bitter and you'll be twisted against him. Do you know what happens to those who accuse God of being unloving because he created hell? According to the passages that we just read in Romans 14 and in Isaiah 45, they will be judged. They will be ashamed. All they that are incensed against thee shall be ashamed. They will be ashamed when they are judged. They will then bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they will be ashamed of themselves for not having studied what the Bible said, not having found out the truth. And then according to Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, these shall go away into everlasting punishment. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. The last thing a lost person does who's currently mad at God, the last thing they do before going into eternity is they bow their knee. And they confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you say, does it save them? No. But it sure does justify the God who tried to save them ahead of time. I tell you, if you are not willing to bow the knee now and you're not willing to confess him now, you will later and you will be ashamed and you will regret it and you will head to a devil's hell for eternity for doing so. You say, why? Because God is holy. 
There are those who accuse God of being unjust because God saves some bad people. And he does. And he sends some quote-unquote good people to hell. People say, I can't understand how God saves save people like that. God saved that down and out. How many of you know of some preachers, you say they, before they were saved, they were rough and tough, they were lower than a snake's, battle, bar, uh, snake's belly, they were found at the bottom of the barrel, but God saved them. How many of you know of preachers like that? Thank God that he does save some men like that. There are a lot of good people in society who could not tolerate to listen to some of those rough and tough preachers that came from those backgrounds because they are society's good people and they are upstanding people. And they say, how can you say that God would save scum like that and he would send a nice person like me to hell? Do you know what happens to those people who say that God is unjust? Same thing as I just said about people that claim that he's not a God of love. They will be judged. They will be ashamed. They will bow the knee. They will confess and they will depart from him into everlasting punishment. You say, what happens to those who, who accuse God of being a tyrant for insisting that there is only one way to heaven? I'll tell you what will happen to them. They will be judged. They will be ashamed. They will bow the knee. They will confess. They will depart from him into everlasting punishment. Do you notice the recurring theme? It doesn't matter what your issue is against God. It doesn't matter what your complaint is against God. If you do not receive his son as your savior, the same punishment will happen to you. We have a world today that's filled with people who are ambivalent, indifferent, or even outright angry at God because they have no idea how holy God is. And that is fundamentally means that they have no idea, get this, if you do not realize how holy God is, you do not realize how sinful you are. It's when we see God for who he is that we see ourselves for who we are. And when we see ourselves for who we are, brethren, those of you who are already saved, we stop complaining about issues in our lives because we realize that we are unprofitable servants at best. You say, how holy is God? Well, for starters, he's so holy that his book is called the Holy Bible. This Holy Bible speaks of holiness some 654 times in the Bible. 654 times the Bible speaks about holiness. Then why aren't the big name preachers preaching about God's holiness? Why doesn't the contemporary church have any time for God's holiness or for saints living holy lives? And why does contemporary Christian music sing about holiness while acting on the stages, not to mention what they're doing in their private lives, like they're getting ready to be future residents of hell. Why? We have abandoned the truth of the holiness of God. People don't even seem to realize what holiness is anymore, except that in their heart, 
their conscience is telling them that holiness is something that they're not attracted to. Noah Webster, back in 1828, he said this. He said, holiness signifies being perfectly pure, immaculate and complete in moral character. Two times in the Bible, once in Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm going to read it in a minute, and once in Revelation chapter 4, two times in the Bible, there are creatures similar to angels, ever so slightly different. Those of you who have studied the Bible will know that there are angels, and then there are also seraphims, and there are cherubs, in some places called cherubims. Correct? Two times in the Bible, in uh, Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, those seraphims are recorded in the scripture for crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. And I'll read those passages to you just now. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, saw I also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And if your opinion of God is not high and lifted up this morning, then you've got the wrong perspective and the wrong vision. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Revelation chapter 4, starting at verse 8, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, which was, past tense, and is, present tense, and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. You might say, what does that have to do with salvation? Well, firstly, they say it three times. Holy, holy, holy. But why? Because even Jesus Christ himself, when addressing God the Father... Jesus Christ called him Holy Father. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Holy Son of God. When it was prophesied of his birth, uh, both before he was born and also looking back afterwards, he's described as God's Holy Child, Jesus. The Son is Holy. We know that the Spirit of God in some places called The ghost is the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. You wonder why those seraphims are saying holy, holy, holy. 
It's because the Godhead is manifest in three persons, regardless of what the cults say, regardless of what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. God the Father is holy, the Son is holy, the Spirit is holy, and those seraphims have more doctrine in them than all of these modern theologians who deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. His holiness causes the seraphims to cry out. They can't contain themselves. His holiness causes the 24 elders to hit the deck. It says they fall down before him they and worship with true worship. His holiness caused the prophet Isaiah to confront his own sin. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. You say, when did he get that opinion? He got that opinion of himself when he saw the holiness of God. If we ever see the holiness of God, we will see the sinfulness, the filth of ourselves. We will stop complaining about our brethren. We will stop criticizing other Christians. And we will realize I've got enough problems of my own to take care of rather than to worry about someone else's sin. God cannot stand sin. Can't stand it. You don't realize how much God hates and abhors sin. Sin is so disgusting to a holy God that the first time that sin entered this universe, not this world, the first time sin entered this universe, God was compelled by His holiness to cast Satan out of heaven And he cast out one third of the angels out of heaven at that same time who rebelled against God. Now the book of Revelation tells us in one place of the angels who were loyal and faithful to God. It says that there is at least ten thousands times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. That's over a hundred million angels that are still loyal to God. Which means that of the one third that fell, there's over fifty million angels that God cast out of heaven. Think about that. 50 million. Do you know what the Bible says is the end state of those 50 million? It's, I'll be honest, when it comes to the study of what God has, how God has dealt with the devils, it's a little hard to understand. Some of them, the Bible says, are reserved in chains unto everlasting destruction. God has chained some of them up. Some of them, the Bible says right now, according to the book of Jude, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Some of them wander about the earth as a roaring lion seeking whom they may devour. One of them is described as the prince of the power of the air. One of them is in the atmosphere around us today. You say you're getting spooky. Yeah, I'm also getting theological and real. But regardless of those ones who are reserved in chains right now, or those who are wandering stars right now, or those who are walking to and fro in the earth seeking whom they might devour right now, or those who are influencing what's going on in the airwaves around us today, the prince of the power of the air, such as radio waves, such as cell phone waves, such as television waves, and things like that. Yeah, I tell you where they all wind up. They all wind up in a lake of fire. Because God's holiness says, I'm not going to tolerate any sin. God cannot stand sin. That's not where it ends, by the way. 
Job in Job chapter 25 says, the stars are not pure in his sight. The stars are not pure in God's sight. You say, how did Job know that? Well, it's interesting that the Bible says in Jude that there's wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I like seeing the stars on a clear, cold night. I like that. But did you ever wonder how many of those stars that we're looking at, how many of them are stars and how many of them are wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? You ever wonder what it is about NASA that seems to have an obsession with space and trying to prove that the Bible's wrong while they look out there at the stars? They're following a spiritual influence, that organization. There's spirits involved in what they believe. The stars are not pure in his sight. And then the Bible says, how much less man that is a worm. This explains why the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that God is going to burn up, God is going to melt, God is going to dissolve the elements, and he's going to do that to the current heavens. And then in Revelation 21, the Bible says that God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem wherein dwelleth righteousness. You say, what? God is going to destroy heaven? I thought we are all getting excited about going to heaven. You, you don't understand. I, I think sometimes people don't understand. You say, why would God destroy heaven? Heaven's where we're all wanting to get to. Yeah, but something happened in heaven once. Long before your great aunt or great uncle passed away and went to heaven something happened in heaven in times past something happened prior to the creation of man in genesis chapter 1 2 and 3 because satan had already fallen at that point and god still remembers what took place in heaven all those years ago and heaven itself is not the same to god today and he says one day i'm going to have to create a new one because this one was corrupted by sin You haven't seen what God has seen. God has bad memories. And the only way to fix some of those things is with a clean slate. God is holy. He hates the sins that you have committed. He hates the attitude that you have had towards sin. Now, if you're saved here this morning, I'm glad you're saved. And I'm not trying to be critical of you. But I am trying to be blunt and be very, very honest. There are times in your life where not only have you sinned, there are times in your life where you've had a bad attitude about sin. It's true. Some of your sins have been natural. You say, what do you mean by natural? Well, sometimes you just get angry. I'm not excusing anger this morning. But sometimes you just do get angry. Do you know who gets angry? Parents do. Do you know why parents get angry? (laughs) Every parent here knows why you get angry, right? Because they do stupid stuff, right? They do stuff that you've already told them not to do. You're like, I thought we learned this last time. And you're doing it again. And sometimes it makes you angry. That's what I'd say is a natural sin. Someone does something stupid while you're driving down the road. They nearly cause an accident by running a red light. You nearly get hit. You don't just say, oh, well, bless his heart. You get angry at them for doing it. Which, by the way, bless his heart is pretty much the southern way of being angry while being polite about it, isn't it? But some of us, sometimes in our life, I'm not talking about just natural sins, which are our reactions to things that happen in the spur of the moment. 
The Bible talks about a type of sin and I think that probably every single person here in this room today has committed this type of sin before and that's a sin that's called presumptuous. This one's not an accident. This is one that before you did it, your conscience says, "Uh uh-uh, and you did it anyway. That's bad. That's, That's a heinous sin. When you think about it and you realize it's wrong and you do it anyway and you know there's a holy God who hates sin. David said in Psalm 19 verse 13, he said, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over him or over me. You should see what God thinks about presumptuous sins. And I'm not going to get a show of hands here this morning. I'm not going to say, raise your hands if you committed a presumptuous sin. You say, why aren't I going to ask for a show of hands? First of all, some of you wouldn't be honest about it. You'd lie and keep your hands down, which would make you a sinner just by lying, by keeping your hand down. And secondly, I'm going to make the assumption, not presumption, I'm going to make the assumption that you've all committed sins that are presumptuous. You say, well, yeah, I did it. You don't know how holy God is. You don't know what God thinks about it. You want to know what God thinks about presumptuous sin? Listen to this, Numbers 15, verse 30. But the soul that doeth aught presumptuous, the same reproacheth the Lord. And that soul shall be cut off from among his people. God says, you know what presumptuous sin is? It's worthy of death. See, sometimes we think, well, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't done any of those sins that the Bible says. Those things are sins under death. I haven't done those. So I haven't done any bad ones. Look, when you've done something that was wrong and you knew it was wrong and you went ahead and do it anyway, that is a presumptuous sin. It doesn't matter whether it's quote-unquote big or small. It doesn't matter whether it's a black sin or a white sin. When you do it presumptuously, God says it's a sin unto death because he's holy. You have a twofold problem here this morning, and that is you have sin and God has holiness and your sin and God's holiness do not mix. Secondly, if you say, well, it's, that's pretty bad, smoker. Oh, it gets worse. The second thing you need to know about God is not his love. First thing you need to know about him is his holiness. But the second thing you need to know about God is his justice. God is not just holy, he's just. Everyone claims that they're seeking justice nowadays. You notice that? Seeking justice for this, seeking justice for that. I'm glad that we live in North Carolina. I'm glad that our ocean is the Atlantic Ocean. I'm glad that I don't live in a state in this country whose ocean is the Pacific Ocean. You notice whether it be... There's three states that share the Pacific Ocean, right? California, Oregon, Washington. They're all as nutty as squirrels out there. It's like there's a three-way competition to say who can be the weirdest. One of those states, California, talking about justice, they just passed a law about two weeks ago. A state that never allowed slavery, California never allowed slavery, has passed a law to take money from people who never owned slaves, to give to people who have never been slaves, and that's what they call justice. That's not justice. It's no wonder if people think that's justice, no wonder they can't understand God and the Bible. They don't even know what the words mean anymore. Just means regular, 
orderly, suitable, exactly proportioned, conformed to the rules of justice, specifically doing equal justice. And Webster, when he described what justice is, he quoted Leviticus chapter 19, verse 36, which says, just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin shall you have, I am the Lord your God. In other words, when we think of God, we need to realize that God's sense of justice says at the end of this world, not necessarily now, you say some things are unjust right now, but at the end, God balances everything out. He's just. And a lot of people say, well, oh, okay, well, if that's how it works, then I I know I've done some things wrong. I'm going to do some good things. And I'm going to hope that my good deeds balance out my bad deeds. That's how some people think they're trying to work their way to heaven. That is a grave, grave error for a number of reasons. Firstly, your sins were committed against an infinite God. He is all-knowing. That is, He is omniscient. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is all-present. He is omnipresent. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. So therefore your sins are not sins that can easily be weighed or measured. Your sins are inherently infinitely evil. They are not trivial and they cannot be weighed. Secondly, your good deeds do not carry the cleansing power that you may think that your good deeds carry. Some people think, oh, my good deeds are going to clean up for my bad deeds. They're going to outweigh my bad deeds. No, they're not. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says that all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They're not going to clean up anything with your good deeds. They're not going to whitewash anything. God looks at your good deeds and says they are as filthy rags. Well, is that bad enough yet? No, it gets worse before it gets better. You say, what do I mean? God's justice. Get this. This is where this is where God's work of salvation. You say, oh, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And we trivialize what God did sometimes. God's justice is such that if God chose someone to be a savior to bear our sins, if that Savior was not willing and agreeable to pay for our sins, then it would be unjust of God as the Father to transfer such a debt of sin upon His Son. Do you understand what I'm saying? If we're sinners and God says your sins have to be paid for, and I have to find someone who's infinitely sinless to pay for the weight of your infinite sins to balance it out justly. If God says to Jesus, here's what I want you to do, and if Jesus says no, and if God says I'm going to do it anyway, that makes the Father unjust. And He cannot be unjust or He becomes as sinful as we are. See the mess that it creates? 
And that's where the third thing you need to know is not that God is holy and that God is just. And the third thing that you need to know is not that God is love. The third thing you need to know is God's willingness. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And verse 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. I still hear pages rustling. Which, by the way pages rustling in the bible is one of the most beautiful sounds there is on planet earth second peter 3 verse 9 the lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness but is long suffering to usward not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance god is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance but that is the perspective of god as the father what is the perspective of the God as the Son? Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, this is Jesus, when Jesus comes into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. Who's thou? That's the Father. When he, the Son, comes into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou, the Father, wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me, Jesus, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Jesus, lo, I come, Jesus, in the volume of the book, it is written of me, Jesus, to do thy will, O God, the Father. Jesus, as the Son of God, came to do the will of God, the Father. And verse 8 says, above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. All of this, you say, oh, this is a quote from somewhere else in the Bible, right? Because in it says, I come. And then did you notice in verse 7, it puts in parentheses, In the volume of the book, it is written of me. And a lot of people say, oh, that's a reference back to Psalms. Because the book of Psalms has the same passage in Psalm 40, verse 6. And it's true that Hebrews 10 is referring to Psalm chapter uh, 40. But what's interesting is when you get to Psalm 40, do you know what Psalm 40 says? Hebrews refers to Psalms. Psalms says In the volume of the book, it is written of me. Then what book is Psalms referring to? (laughs) I'll tell you what book it's referring to. Psalms is referring to a book that that is written in heaven that man doesn't really know anything about. You say, huh? What? In the volume of the book, it is written of me. That's what David the psalmist said in the book of Psalms. And it's talking about something that God the Father and God the Son wrote it down in there in heaven. How many of you have noticed in the Bible that Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8? He is a lamb slain from when? From the foundation of the world. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8. There is a book in heaven where God the Father and God the Son wrote the record down In the volume of the book, it is written of me, I come, Jesus saying, I come to do thy will, O God. It was pre-agreed before the foundation of the world that Jesus was going to come to be our Savior. He was willing 
He was willing to make a way that he could save us in his holiness. And in Luke chapter 22, which I'll turn to quickly. Um, if you don't get there, don't get there. Don't worry. It's Luke 22 verse 41, when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, not long before he is to go to the cross, it says, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. When Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done, he's referring to in the volume of the book, it is written of me. They have agreed together that Jesus is going to do this. And therefore, God in his holiness who must judge sin, God in his justice says everything has to balance out. The infinite sin must be balanced by an infinite righteous Savior, but it has to be voluntary. Otherwise, to forcibly put the penalty of someone's sins onto someone that doesn't want to pay for someone's sins, that is an unjust act. And because God the Father is willing to give His Son, because God the Son is willing to do the will of the Father, it makes this a just act in salvation. Jesus' willingness in Luke chapter 22, it removes God's justice as being a hindrance from salvation, which means that Jesus' sacrifice could satisfy God's holiness, thus paving the way for us to be saved. Notice what I said, thus paving the way for us to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Please turn in your Bible this morning to Isaiah chapter 53, and I'm going to move very quickly as we get towards the conclusion of the message this morning. I want to talk to you briefly this morning about God's reconciliation. Reconciliation. As you turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10, we're going to bring that up on the screen. What I've done this morning to hopefully help make this passage a little easier to understand, I color-coded parts of it. Um, And what we've got is where I've got green writing, that's a reference to God the Father. Where we've got red writing, that's a reference to God the Son. And when there's blue writing, that's a reference to you and I, the sinners. And you say, why did I do it like that? Because it talks a lot about he and he and he, and you're wondering which he is being spoken about. So let's walk through this together. This passage here in Isaiah 53, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord, God the Father, to bruise him, Jesus. It pleased God the Father to bruise his son, Jesus. He, God the Father, has put him, Jesus, to grief. When thou, you and I, shall make his soul, Jesus' soul, an offering for sin, he, God the Father, shall see Jesus' seed. Let me pause there a moment. You notice that when we pray, Jesus taught us to pray in his name. You know what we become when we become born again? We become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. When God looks down and Satan accuses us of sin, do you know what God looks down and sees? He sees the righteous record of his seed. He says, brother of Jesus Christ, everything's okay. When he sees that, he, God the Father, shall prolong his days. That's not a reference to you and I, that's a reference to Jesus. You say, what do you mean prolong his days? Well, all of the kings 
through all the world. The kings of Israel lived 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years that they were king for. But Jesus Christ, who came to earth to be our savior, do you know how long he's lived so far as the king of Israel? A grand total of zero years, zero days. They rejected him and said, we will not have this man to reign over us. But God, the Father, is so impressed with Jesus being an offering for our sin that God, the Father, will prolong his days and he will have a kingdom over this world that lasts for 1,000 years. He prolongs his days. And the pleasure of the Lord, God, the Father, shall prosper in his hand, Jesus' hand. God, the Father, he shall see of the travail of his soul. You know what Jesus said about that? He said, my soul is poured out unto death. God the Father sees the travail of his soul and shall be, this is one of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible, satisfied. You know what God does? God the Father looks at his son on the cross. And I know the Bible says in one place that God the Father couldn't bear to watch. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But God looks at that and says, I'm satisfied. That's enough. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant, Jesus, justify many. That's all of us who are saved here today. He's justified us. If you're not saved here this morning, would you like to join the ranks of many? Would you like to be justified? Would you like God to weigh the scales in your favor? It's not going to happen with your good works. It's going to happen with his soul being made an offering for your sin. For he... Jesus shall bear their iniquities. That's the sins of you and I. Therefore will I, God the Father, divide him, Jesus Christ, a portion with the great. And he, Jesus Christ, shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he, the Lord Jesus Christ, hath poured out his soul unto death. And he, the Lord Jesus Christ, was numbered with you and I, the transgressors. And he, the Lord Jesus Christ, bear the sin of many, that's you and I, and made intercession for you and I, the transgressors. That's the most phenomenal passage of Scripture. God's reconciliation. He said, we pray you in Corinthians, it says, we pray you, we beg you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And because he voluntarily did this, the infinite righteousness of the just is able to cover for the infinite sinfulness of the unjust. Thank God for His willingness. I stand here today as a feeble man, a sinner who got in on God's goodness. And I know the Bible says that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, we beg you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be 
as wool. Do you know what God wants to do today? If you here today, if you have never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're not saved, if you're not born again, might I even say, if you are doubtful about it, you say, I'm not sure. Can I say to you today, like God himself says, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. God wants to do business with you here today. We who are saved pray you, we beg you, be ye reconciled to God. God is holy, and if you walk out of here with your sins on your back, His holiness gives Him no alternative other than to send you to hell. His justice says that those sins have to be paid for. He tried to put them onto His Son, and if you reject that, you have to wear them on yourself because He is just. But because He loves you, He was willing. As the Father, He was willing to give His best, to give His Son And God, as the Son, was willing to do the will of the Father in spite of what it cost Him. You can't reject that today. All people want to do is talk about God's love. Hasn't God shown us His love today by showing us what a brilliant plan of salvation He had to devise so that He could save us without compromising the integrity of His holiness and His justice? Last verse that we'll look at this morning, and then I'm going to ask Brother Max to come and lead an invitation here today in Hebrews chapter 2, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 2. How many of you here today, you could raise your hand or you could say amen and say, I understand what you're talking about, preacher. I understand what God had to do so that he could do it without compromising who he is. So he could save us without becoming unholy or without becoming unjust. How many of you say, I understand that? All right, the majority of people here today then we need to address one last verse and then be done. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. You say, what does that mean? It means you better pay attention to what I preached this morning. Lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, in other words, if all your sins... If, they get, if you get what you deserve, I know I'm not an expert preacher, but I gave you Bible this morning. I didn't just tell you what Jesus did for you. I told you what God the Father and God the Son had to work on together so that they could save you without God, without God tarnishing His integrity as holy and just. I showed you this morning how God the Father had to be willing to give His Son. How God the Son had to be willing to obey the Father even before we get to Jesus dying on the cross. And if you walk out of here this morning and say, I can't wait to get to the football, I can't wait to get to the restaurant, and you walk out of here this morning and neglect what God has done for you, then my question to you is this, how shall you escape if you neglect so great salvation? God's done everything He can do. And it's up to you during the time of invitation this morning to make a decision. We're going to ask uh, in just a minute at the invitation, we're going to ask people to come to the altar to receive Christ as Savior. But you're not coming to a place. You're not coming to a person who's going to show you a Bible this morning, what the Bible says. You're coming to God the Father Himself as a sinner. And you're saying, God, I want your Son to save me from my sins. And the Bible says this morning, if you'll come, He will save you. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, and then I'll ask Brother Max to take over the invitation. Heavenly Father, I ask during this time, these few minutes now, 
Lord, if you've spoken to a heart about their need for you as Savior today, Lord, I pray that your spirit will just get real heavy on them right now. Lord, I pray that you bring them to a place of repentance. I pray that you give them courage to act, Lord. Lord, I pray that you help them to overcome their fear of walking the aisle this morning. Lord, we know that Revelation 21 says that the fearful wind up in the lake of fire. Lord, I pray that, that would not be true of anyone here today. Lord, I've tried to exalt your word. I've tried to exalt who you were this morning, but nothing I've said comes near to the exaltation that you receive, the glory that you receive if a sinner comes to you today. And we ask that that might be the case during the time of invitation now. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.